Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have um, displayed yourself in the giving of the law. We pray that you would make that known to us this morning, that we would see the beauty of Christ, your justice, and your mercy wrapped in one. And we, we pray for wisdom and discernment as we work through some more of the, of the um, Code of the Covenant this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, we are in Exodus 21, starting in verse 12. And we're continuing in the, in the section that is placed immediately after the Ten Commandments, and it's called the Book of the Covenant. And uh, last week, we, we went through the breezy lesson of the laws on slavery. Just had a grand time with that. Uh, we have highlighted the relationship between prescriptive and descriptive law before. What what were those terms? What do they mean? Prescriptive. What do we what do we say that meant? What do we come to the conclusion of? That was the hard and fast prescribed law that's unchangeable it, throughout time. If the Ten Commandments is prescriptive, it's eternal, right? It reflects the ten, the ten testimonies of the nature of God. Welcome. And, and is eternal, because God doesn't change, right? So descriptive, what would descriptive be? It kind of describes the prescriptive law, goes into a lot more detail. It's temporary. It's for time and place. How does the nature of God, how is the nature of God reflected within a culture? So the, the, the underlining reasons for it are, are eternal, but how does it express, how is it expressed within the context of time and space of that, of that culture? Good. Um, so right now we're working through a, a bit of a descriptive law, and it can be a little difficult and a little weird to us because we're in a different time and place. So we want to look for what is fundamental and uh, what we're and what we're just what we're reading and studying today, we look at some laws concerning capital offenses. What do I mean when I say capital offenses? Murder, murder is one. What usually happens with murder? Someone dies. What about the person who who does the murder? They are if they they you know five to ten probation in ten years is that. What happens? What sh- they they execute. they execute them. It's capital uh, capital <coughs> crime. You usually have capital punishment, and there's a big old debate on whether or not we should continue to do that as an enlightened society. Um, I, I, I would be uh, curious to hear uh, maybe some discussion on that a little bit later. But let's look at what the Bible says um, on that for purposes of Israel in time and place. Exodus 21, verse 12. I'm going to read through 17 today. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar 
that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. What a way to end that one. Everybody shifted in their seats a little bit. All right. Because we all went through high school. Okay. I have a little footnote under curses that says, or dishonors. Or dishonors. Well, that's ex- you're anticipating. Very good. Uh, let's look at verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. What, have we seen? Good morning. Welcome. Today we're talking about murder. Um, what, uh, what, have we seen this before? Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Where, have, have we seen this before? We're in Exodus 20. Verse, no, 21. I'm sorry. Habit. Sorry. Year of habit. Um, 20 verse 12. 21 verse 12. See, this is a thing. 21 verse 12. You must love 20. I, well, we were there for quite a while. Quite a while. All right. Oh, by the way, uh, to ease your sufferings, we have, uh, we have bread. We have plates and napkins. We have plates and napkins. Where have we, uh, man, Jenny, um, where, where do we have, where have we seen this before? This, if you strike a man, you die. Egypt? Egypt? In what way? Well, Moses, when he struck a man dead, he knew that there was punishment, which is why he fled. Okay. So yeah, that's, that's an indication that maybe people would suffer death if they killed someone before. Is there a place... Earlier in time and space, that we, well, okay, that's early. No, 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 that's that's actually good. I was actually thinking of uh, what God told Noah in uh, Genesis nine. Look up Genesis nine, verse six. What does it say? Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever shed the blood of man, by man shed his blood, he shed. For God made man his own. Who said that? Who said that? God. God did. So why are we having it here again? He's already said this. And yet here we have it in a, in, a, in a law. Have we heard it very recently before? Which one? Shall not kill, shall not murder. murder. Kind of the way the word works. Uh, war, you know, kind of the exception there. <clears throat> sort of. Um, 
Literally here it says, dying he shall be put to death. There's an emphasis. This has got to happen. If someone strikes another man down and murders him, this is not an option. He's got to die. It's very specific. 24, Leviticus 24, uh, verse 17 says, Whoever takes human life shall surely be put to death. Again, it's a reemphasis of this principle. Uh, and, and in 21, again, he says, Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. Notice, God is not the whole reverse the order of life PETA kind of thing. Human life is what is sacred, right? Why? Because we're made in his image. What if in the case of self-defense? We'll get to that. Human life is sacred. The image of God is at stake. Whoever disregards its sanctity forfeits his own life. This is not an option. This is what's called, um, well, the, the, the old guys called it lex talionis, which is the law of retribution, measure for measure. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, you've heard that before. It's non-negotiable. If the condition stated occurs, then the death of the violator is absolutely necessary, except when. Verse 13. What's the issue? It was not intentional. Does it say that? If he did not lie in wait for him, right? What is that? What picture? What's that a picture of? Lying in wait. We have on my property right now an infestation of feral hogs. My father has taken it upon himself to build the Class A, number one, government-inspected, incredible hunter suite of a deer stand out in the middle of the woods. This thing has windows all the way around. It's enclosed. Um, it, it, it has... It's premeditated. <laughs> There's going to be some killing. That's the idea. It's very good. It's, th that's the idea here. This is a hunt. The man is hunting another. But here it says, uh, if, if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand. Now, that's an odd expression. God let him fall into his hand? Then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. The issue here is the idea of premeditation. The word comes from a, rebrew, a Hebrew root verb that means to hunt, like a killer stalking his prey. But for a killing that is by impulse or spontaneous or you know, self-defense or something along those lines, God himself provides an asylum for the killer until he is properly judged. What is this anticipating? Do you know of some system in Israel dealing with cities, let's say, that God provides for them in this kind of situation? Have you heard of this? Cities of refuge. You get into a fight with a guy, and it gets heated, and you strike him and you kill him. You may not have meant to do it, but certainly the intent to hit was there. Um, God provides an asylum, cities of refuge later when they get into Israel. Why would, what does that tell you about the nature of God, that he would provide cities of refuge in that situation until the man is properly judged? What's it 
against? What's it trying to keep from happening? And what does that tell you about the nature of God? A two-part question. Why would that be a problem? Because we're not good judges. We're not, are we? We're bloodthirsty, really, when it comes down to it. And what often happens in these situations, and what happens today, is blood feud, blood vengeance. And what he's doing is providing a cooling off period, a, a safe haven for people who are not attached to the situation to judge the facts and mete out what? The truth and justice. God is a God of justice, not blood vengeance. We are. We're revenge people. He's not. That's, what, that's what's going on here. What does that tell you about us? We have evil intent in our hearts. We're not good judges. We're not merciful. We're not, we don't lift up justice. We, we seek quick... This would make me feel better. I'm the judge. I'm God. I want to be in control of uh, what happens. Um, and this, again, is not saying that the man who kills another impulsively is not judged and ultimately put to death. It just says there's a time period for which the guy goes through a proper um, trial. But refuge is only for the one who acts impulsively. What does verse 14 say? Is there asylum for this guy in verse 14? Put him to death. Why? What is it? How does it describe him? He schemes. He's there's cunning. There's a willfulness there. Literally, it says presumptively or arrogantly. That willfulness. Uh, the, the the term is presumptively, arrogantly, and that's the same term used to describe the Egyptian treatment of the Hebrews in slavery. Even if such a one hangs on the very altar of God, he will be punished. And there's a couple of examples of this in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings, um, one is uh, I think Adonijah, one of the sons of David, um, declares himself king, and Solomon, uh, he, he goes, he, he realizes Solomon's king, and so he runs to the temple, hangs on the horns. Solomon shows mercy on him, brings him from the, the altar, and, and puts him in a place that's a safe refuge. He hadn't killed anybody, but he was, he had, anyway. The other is Joab. Joab has kind of a wicked streak and kills somebody, and um, he is put to death by Solomon because of his, his um, blood vengeance idea or, or, or actions in the past. Finally, justice comes to Joab. If you're interested in that, that's 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2. It's pretty, pretty quick right off the bat there in 1 Kings. <coughs> And yet, God describes this guy who is hunting someone else with the same terms used to describe Egyptian, the Egyptian treatment of the Hebrews in slavery. What's at the core issue there? How do the Egyptians treat the Hebrews in slavery? Less than people. Less than people. Would we say contemptuous, maybe? All right. Then you go into this thing. Verse 15. What else deserves capital punishment? Why? Striking them yet not killing them, and yet that deserves death. What's going on there? Just to give you a, 
a hint. Um, the word to strike here means to attack with great force. This is a vicious attack. doesn't kill them, but it's a vicious attack against a parent or parents. Other cultures, this usually does not result in the death penalty, but, um, well, it, even in Hebrew culture, we'll see next week that, that having a vicious attack against someone other than a parent doesn't result in the death penalty. Why the parent? Is it dishonoring? Dishonoring, okay. What's it grounded in? The Trinity. Yes, but what's it grounded in recently the that we've gone over? The Ten Commandments, which one? It's, it's just the prescriptive law that says... Honor your father and mother. And this is a description of how that is not to be, right? How we are to, to honor them by not beating the mess out of them, right? Um, so if it's grounded in the fifth commandment, just just the, the law 195, just, I, just for your information, the Code of Hammurabi, which is a, a set of rules that was at the same time period, um, said, if a son has struck his father, they shall cut off his hand. Uh, it, interesting thing about that, it doesn't mention the mother. I guess you can beat your mom. It's okay. And the Code of Hammurabi. But here in the, in the law of the covenant, you have both parents in view, and the punishment is much more severe. Why would you have death for this? What's the point here? I mean... That's their family. Let them deal with it. Why would we have a law dealing with how another man treats his father and mother? It shows a level of contempt for the basic unit of society, doesn't it? If, from from the standpoint of, of human flourishing, the family unit is the fundamental unit for society. Further, the parents, if we remember from our study through the Ten Commandments, lo those many moons ago, parents are the first authority given to someone by God. You beat on your parents, it's a contempt for God. It's a dishonoring to God and what he has put in place as authority. That structure must be protected or, as we are witnessing in our own culture, society disintegrates. So it's a very high standard. It's a different standard for the parent-child relationship than, than really anything else. Look at verse 16. What do we have going on here? We did a bunch of slave talk last week, indentured servanthood thing. Is that what's in view here? What's in view here, verse 16? Kidnapping. In what prescriptive law is this grounded? Do not steal. What are we stealing? People. Kidnapping also deserves capital punishment. Um, other law codes of, um, of the period also prescribe the death penalty for kidnapping, but only for nobles, only for the rich, only for you know, the university professors and the politicians, not for a common man. In the Code of the Covenant, God says everyone is responsible on this level. You don't kidnap someone else and steal the value of their life and make it uh, for profit of yourself. 
Scripture applies to the noble and to the commoner. There is no distinction for punishment of this crime. So what's the deal here? What is in view? The reflection here um, is, again, the value of human life created in the image of God. Why are they kidnapping them? What's the point? Money. Money. To do what? What are we we talking about here? Sell them as slaves. It was slave trade. Now, does that help a little bit after our discussion last week to see the distinction between what they were talking about with indentured servanthood, 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 and this? Last week, it seemed like slave slavery was okay almost. Right. It was just accepted written in their law. But this is not, and it's not to the extent that if you're caught doing it. It's capital offense. You're, you're, you're killed for this. We don't steal people. We don't sell them into slavery with no hope of, of uh, redemption or recovery. Can you think of a time where this happened in the Old Testament that we've gone through? We've been through Genesis and Exodus, so that's the open view. When has this happened? Joseph. Joseph. Now think about that. If this law had been enforced, we wouldn't have an Israel, except for maybe the tribe of Benjamin, because I don't think Benjamin was involved in it. That's an indictment, isn't it, to them at the beginning? You were in slavery in Egypt because you sold your brother brother into slavery, and this is a capital offense. It's not going to happen in Israel. All right. Now look at verse 17. Now, I, I get... Striking a man, hunting, having a you know manhunt blind. There you wait for him to come in. I, I get that the capital offense. That's that's evil. I, I get um, beating on mom and dad to the point of, of, of a vicious attack and saying that that's a capital offense, right? I get that. I, I get uh, I get slave trade. That's a capital offense. Does this seem out of place here? What is going on here? Strike you a little bit is too much, though. It's sticking down to the same motive as whoever strikes his father and mother. If you have that attitude and it goes unchecked for longer, you're eventually going to act out. Now, what does that sound like? Matthew 5 through 7, doesn't it? So when Jesus says, when you look on a woman with lust, it's the same as committing adultery, he's just pulling that out of nowhere. Where is he getting that? When it says, if you harbor hate in your heart against your brother, it's the same as murder, he's off his rocker. Where is he pulling that from? Has he not read the Bible? Isn't that the intent of the law all along? It's at the heart. All of these things, honor your parents here, in the, in it's Again, it's grounded in the fifth commandment. Honor your parents. It's Kabed is the word used there. It, it literally means to be heavy or weighty. The law here uses the opposite. The, for curse, it means to make light of, to regard lightly, to view as nothing. And here we have, again, a picture of contempt and humiliation. Contempt for human life. Contempt 
for the order that God has presented us. And it's, it's kind of the core of all of these, isn't it? In each of these four situations we have, they all seem kind of disconnected on the surface. But when you look at the core of it, it's contempt for human life. Deep contempt for God and his image bearers. Isn't that our culture? Isn't that where we are? Contempt for the old and no longer useful. Contempt for the unborn mistakes carried in the womb. Contempt for the physically impaired or mentally impaired as burdens. Contempt for those who view reality through the lens of scripture rather than the whim of human rationalization to promote the latest perversion of God's image. If you don't approve what I do, if you don't celebrate my diversity in sin, you are less than human. Isn't that where we are in the tolerance culture? It's not new. In AD um, 178, a Greek philosopher, or Roman philosopher, um, mocked Christians when he wrote this. Let no cultured person draw near. None wise and none sensible, for all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in the sense of, in sense and culture, if anybody is a fool, let him come boldly to become a Christian. We see them in their own houses, wool dresses, cobblers, the worst, the vulgarest, the most uneducated persons. They are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nests, or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp, or worms convening in, a mu in mud. Is that not contempt? for people clinging to their guns and God. Is that, what, is that what we see? It's not new. Men like Celsus are still mocking, still holding contempt. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We get all giddy when we think someone famous is going to come out as a Christian. As if that gives us some more credibility with the world. The world's esteem for a fellow believer somehow elevates all of us in their eyes. Is that, is that how we view that? How's that working? Even the things that are not, Paul uses here is a translation of the most contemptible expression in the Greek language. 
for the Greek, being was everything. To say that someone is not was contemptible. They're worthless. They're nothing. And yet, God has called what others said are not to make something of them, to redeem them. The world will agree with Celsus. Thank God that he chooses the weak and the despised through the finished work of the one who became weak and despised. Because he became weak and despised for us, we can do no less for him. Do we respect those who the world considers worthless? Do we have contempt for those that are not useful to us? Do we mirror the course of this world? We may not kill. We may not kidnap. We may not beat our parents to a pulp. But what's in the heart? Isn't that what the law is after? What's in the heart? Hebrews 13, 12 through 13. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. It's not popular to champion the cause of the weak, the disabled, the worthless. But that's what we're called to do. Any comments on that? This is truly backwards of, of the way that the world views everything. And I think, yeah, I think sometimes it's hard for all of us working in the world and playing the game of school and playing the game at work to get ahead and figure out how the world works and uh, live life. And then we hear this and it's like, Where do you see us failing? And even in our own circles, where are we failing in this? That's, that's not uncommon. How many times have those thoughts lit through your head? If this professor were just not my professor, I could probably pass this class. <laughs> this family member wasn't here, I wouldn't have this kind of anxiety or whatever's going on there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't yell as much if they weren't here. We don't see those situations as being the, the work of God, actually, placing us in that context to show his nature and how we value a person. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they do, but how do you value them? How do you approach a disagreement? How do you approach conflict? Do you do it with contempt, 
or do you do it with come let us reason together? Right? Isn't that the, the Bible-based way of doing it? I think there's a verse about that somewhere. Let us reason together, not with contempt, not with um, dismissiveness that they're not worth my time, my effort, but to value who they are. That's countercultural. We want to get on Facebook and slam people. Twitter wars erupt over nothing. Hashtag of a hashtag of a hashtag. We take to the streets. We blame the 1% for our misfortune and tweet about it on our iPads. This is different. It's an odd faith we're in. It's not a rage faith. It's not a faith that, that um, sets us um, over and against for purposes of domination other people. Does that make sense? Yes? Not enough coffee? Okay. I think Tammy hit the nail on the head when she said it's about our own selfishness because what's at the core of this is pride and selfishness. Mm -hmm. It's that we're placing ourselves above everybody else and we're, and we're trying to do that, clamoring ahead and it happens in our heart. Mm -hmm. and that's what, um, that's what happened in the garden, that's what happened with Satan, that's, you know. Think of the apologetic. Think of the apologetic of that, that the, the witness that you have in caring for those who are despised, abused, abandoned in the culture. It was a great source of shame for um, the pagans that the Christians would go out to the desert to find their babies abandoned on the rocks that they didn't want and take them in and care for them and adopt them. That has no bearing on the context today, does it? There are ways to see this in our culture that I think we have ignored for far too long. Anyway, anything else? I like how you're saying to value them. I think it's important for us to remember not to just make it a checklist. Oh, I'm going to give this person some time mm -hmm. and you know act like I'm for them. But inside the heart is like, oh my gosh, when is this going to be over? Can we mm -hmm. But I'm spending time with them so right. people can see I care. You know, value them like love others and see to their interests above your own. And mm -hmm. Their interests are our interests. And that's when the love of Christ can really grow in our hearts. By his when did Christ love us? Romans 3 says this. <clears throat> 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. worthless and yet while we were worthless Christ died for us um, I've said this before and here and, and I'll repeat it again my mother-in-law uh, uh, brought out yesterday at the um, fried food fest the assault on my arteries yesterday um, <clears throat> Kevin tell your mom about what you think about frozen or whatever and and 
I still think the gospel was missed in Frozen. I love the movie. It's a great movie. And, and even though the, the, the main song completely misses the point of the whole movie, um, the, she didn't let it. Anyway, never mind. Um, so uh, what if Anna, instead of her last sacrificial act being for her sister, had done it for um, the, uh, the, the, the guy from Weaseltown? Whatever. <laughs> I think the name says it all. Um, or, or what about the prince that tried to kill them all? Right? What if she had sacrificed for him? Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that Christ? Now, I'll give Disney props for taking a step towards something at least somewhat redeemable. Um, I hear Tangled is better, but, you know, we'll go with it. But isn't that the gospel? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely will a man die for the righteous. I think we need to be living that out. And, and I think these laws go to the root of that. Human life is precious. Saved or unsaved, it still bears the image of God. We need to be about protecting it and... and championing it for the sake of the gospel to display the gospel Any, anything else maybe we're not if we're not loving the value of people we're forgiving how Christ loves us now mm-hmm. and how we're forgiven so, so we know we've been forgiven much forgive much and love mm-hmm. much or we're supposed to right. so maybe just uh, reevaluate the realization that we need to walk in for ourselves because then we then it starts just to love others, and then you, when I know when I'm reaching out to people, when the Lord lets me do, leads me to do that, then I'm remembering how He loves me, mm-hmm. and then I'm loving them too, you know. Yeah. So. yeah. It it makes uh it, it puts hands and feet to the gospel in your own heart right. when you're oh this was difficult, <laughs> this is hard. Uh, how how much more the cross? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any anything else? Let love be genuine, and that's grounded in what? The genuineness of the love of God toward us. It's all, it's all based on who he is and his nature. Um, all right, let's pray. Father, I'll be the first to confess that I stink at this. I... Uh, more often than I care to admit, react out of self-preservation and the desire for quiet and peace rather than out of love for neighbor. I ask you to forgive me for that. I pray that you forgive us for that. Grant to us by your Spirit a desire to live peaceably in service, to be countercultural, to prefer others more than we prefer ourselves. That's not natural. 
it takes a great work of your spirit to get us to that point, to help us to do that. And we beg you to build in us, to conform us to the image of Christ who was made lowly and despised for those who are worthless and redeemed us to make us worthy in him. Help us to reflect that and how we treat each other, how we treat those around us who are despised and worthless and not convenient for us. Pray that you are with us in the next service. Be with Tyus as he brings the message. By your spirit, I pray that you would challenge our hearts, draw us closer to Jesus. Display for us his beauty, his worth, his desirability above and against all lesser things. Our pride, our wants, our dreams. Teach us to delight in him and him alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.